All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, page 1203. Let me read the passage. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, the end is at hand. Well, at least for me anyway. Two months, two weeks, one day, 14 and a half hours, but who's counting? It's weird being in the final stretch of of a role like this as a pastor. Um, Maybe you've been in the final stretch of something before. Maybe you've given your notice at work, or perhaps uh, you remember back in high school when it was you know, last quarter of senior year and pretty much, you know, everything was set and you knew what college you were going to. Or maybe you served in the military and it was your last tour and you knew you weren't going to re-enlist, you weren't going to re-up. And and so you're in that final phase. And, And it's an interesting place to be. I mean, of course, everything ends in life, including life itself. Everything comes to an end. But sometimes we're in a place where we know that it's coming to an end and we're aware of it. And, and it's when you're in that place that the thing that, that you often gain from it is a sense of perspective. You know, you, you just kind of realize what's important and what's not important. And you have a different perspective on life and on your situation. I, I think one of the, as I've been reflecting on, you know, being in this sort of home stretch of, of my uh, term of service here at the church, I, I think, you know, what, what it's done for me is I find that I'm less caught up in worrying about all of the, the decisions. And, it, you know, when I wasn't in the home stretch, it's like, we've got to get everything right, and we have, to, we have to make sure all the decisions are right, and, and dot every I, and cross every T, and make sure everything works together perfectly in the church. And now I'm just kind of like, you know, that's really not as important as just being with you and worshiping. You know, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to coming to church and just hearing the voices of God's people and relationships. You know, you realize what's really important. I'm feeling a lot less like Martha in the kitchen, more like Mary just sitting at Jesus' feet with you and just kind of being in the Lord's presence. It's a good thing to have perspective, and that's what the end gives you sometimes. Well, that's what Peter is trying to drive home here in this little section of Peter's letter. We've been studying 1 Peter. And, and Peter, of course, as we've been talking about, is writing to Christians who are in crisis. Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing hostility, persecution. They're undergoing a fiery trial. And as you know, when you're in the midst of a fiery trial, one of the first things you lose is a sense of perspective. You lose a sense of priority. When you're in a trial, you're just, you know, you have tunnel vision, and all you can focus on is just surviving. And, and so Peter is writing to these Christians he loves, and he's trying to give them the big picture again. And one of the things he does to remind them of the big picture is to remind them that they're in the home stretch, that the end is at hand. 
Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Not the end of the semester, not the end of a job, the end of all things. In other words, the return of Christ. Peter is telling them, look, Christ is coming back. And, and when Jesus returns, the end of all things will happen. The end of elections, the end of business, the end of um, entertainment, the end of television shows. All the things that, that we're so wrapped up in and caught up in and focused on, all of that's going to end. And the end of all things, he says, is near. Now, now did Peter think that Jesus' return was about, just about to happen in his own lifetime? When, when he says the end of all things is near, does he, does he say that, is he saying like, hey, probably in the next year or so Jesus is coming back? Is, is that what he was trying to communicate to them? Well, I don't think so. I, I think what Peter is saying is, is actually another idea that we find throughout the New Testament. It, it's this idea that, that, that Christians are now living in the end, the end times is what we often call it. Um, that, that we, with the, re- the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, we have now entered the final phase of human history. That, that we're in the end, the, the end times period. Sometimes people will ask, what do you think? Do you think we're in the end times? And, and the, when people have asked me that question, I always give the same answer. Yes, we are in the end times. That, that's what the New Testament calls the period between Jesus' first and second comings. This is the final season of the TV series. After this, it's the end of the series. And there have been other seasons, other episodes, but we're now in the final season. You know, you get a sense of that. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, writing about Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Here's an example of this New Testament perspective. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Peter says, this is about Jesus. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. Now look at verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in what? These last times for your sake. So I think that's the idea. Peter's trying to tell them that this is it. Human history has reached its conclusion, and we're in it. It, This is the final home stretch. And, and so throughout 1 Peter, and I won't take the time to lead you through it, but you know, you know, scan through 1 Peter sometime and just look at how many times Peter points the Christians to the second coming of Jesus or the judgment day or Jesus' appearing or the end. He, he's always saying, guys, guys, it, it, it's, it's going to end. It's going to end. And that should give us perspective on the sufferings and the challenges that, that we face. The end of all things is near. So what is your own perspective on time? How, how do you conceptualize time? How do you, how do you see it and think about it? Or do you think about time um, sort of week by week, you know, five days of working and then the weekend and everybody's working for the weekend and, you know, just it's like a cycle that goes around and around? Or, or maybe you think of time more longer than that, and you think of time in terms of like, all right, i got to work this many years, and then finally, retirement. 
That, that's kind of how I think of time is work and then retirement someday. Or, or maybe, maybe you think of time like, um, you know, the next big event. So you got your calendar right. And then you're like, okay, when's vacation? All right, circle out of my calendar. And then every day, put an X, you know, every day, getting closer, getting closer. And finally, vacation comes, then vacation's over. You're like, all right, what's the next big thing? Ah, there's a movie coming out that I'm excited about. All right, I'll circle that in my calendar. You know, X, and ah, oh, that's got that. And what's next? Oh, a new iPhone's coming out. Okay, circle that in my calendar. X, 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 X. But, but, you know, how do you think of time? We all conceptualize time somehow. But Peter is saying, and, and throughout the New Testament, that the big overarching lens that we as Christians should look at time is that we're in, in the end. This is, this, this is it. And the next big thing that we're looking for on the calendar is the return of Christ. And you say, well, what day is that? And I'm, well, I don't know. <laughs> but we know it's coming. We don't know when that final episode will be, but it's one day closer today. And so that should give us a sense of perspective. The time Time is short. You know, and, and if you're here today and, and you're not yet a, a follower of Jesus, I, I just want to give you that perspective that, you know, we don't have forever, that there is a limited amount of time for each of us. Time is short. And, and maybe you've been thinking about the things of Christ and about the gospel, and, but you've been kind of putting it off and thinking like, well, you know, I... Maybe when I get through this, I'll, I'll deal with that. You know, don't put it off. We don't have forever. The time is short. This is the end. This is the time to be thinking about eternal matters. But when we have this perspective that the end is near, that, that we're in the home stretch, it really does change your priorities. It really does change your perspective. And that's, what, again, what Peter is trying to do here for these suffering Christians is to give them a broader perspective and a different set of priorities. And, and so what then does it, does it mean to live in the end? What, how does that look practically? And so what Peter does in the rest of verses 7 to 11, if you look at chapter 4, is he gives them, I'm going to argue, two major ways that an end times perspective should affect how we live and how it should affect our priorities. And here's the first one. Number one, living with an awareness of the end should cause us to seek God more fervently. We, we should be seeking a, a more living relationship with God, specifically through prayer. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Because we're in the end, we, we should really be leaning into prayer and to our relationship with the Lord. We should be living in relationship with the Lord more intentionally. And so he, he calls us to prayer. He says, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Maybe you have another translation of the Bible that says sober-minded or something like that. You know, the, the idea is, is, you know, sobriety, clear-mindedness, having a clear head, not having anything clouding your mind and your thinking. It's tough to pray when your mind's all clouded, isn't it? And there's all kinds of things that cloud our minds. Um, you know, certainly alcohol and drugs, you know, he's talking here about uh, being sober-minded. Certainly substances can cloud our minds. 
And, and that's why Christians should not be drunk. Christians should not use drugs that affect our minds. And you, you know, there's a lot of reasons not to, health reasons, all kinds of reasons. But here's one, because it, you can't be connecting to God when, when your mind is all you know, clouded with things. That, that's why even if, you know, even if you go to Colorado where they have legalized marijuana smoking, even though it's legal, Christians shouldn't do that because we, we shouldn't have anything that's clouding our minds. But it's not just substances that cloud our minds. All kinds of things cloud our minds. Obsessions cloud our minds. You know, just constantly thinking about the next boat or the next motorcycle or the next pair of shoes that I want or, or, or whatever. You know, I don't know if you're like that. Sometimes I, I get obsessed about something. I just keep thinking about it. Then you're researching it online, and that's all you can think about. And, and, and then you realize whenever your mind is free, it's always going back to that obsessive thing that you're focused on. And it's tough to pray when there's some obsession clouding your mind. Maybe fear or anxiety or worry clouds your thinking and, and keeps you all gummed up inside. Or how about this one? You know, another thing I thought about that clouds our mind, and this is kind of a modern challenge, is, is life in the modern world is a constant bombardment of stimuli. You know, it's, it's always this data and information coming at us. We have it on our phones, you know, where we, we take it with us. You, you know, the, uh, we have. Um, earbuds in, you know, people are always listening to music, we get in our cars, we turn on the music, we turn on the sports talk, we turn on the talk radio, we go in our homes and there's three TVs and they're all on and they're all blaring all the time. And, and so, you know, this is constant noise and constant background and, and, and we don't know what to do when it's quiet anymore. You know, what, what do I do with silence? Like somebody turns something on, I need some kind of stimuli, it feels weird. The scariest thought might be a walk out in the woods where it's quiet, right? Well, I'll take my earbud with me and I can listen to music while I walk in the woods. What am I saying, that it's wrong to listen to music? Of course not. But, but I'm saying, do we ever have space where, where our minds are clear so that we can just talk to God? It's very difficult to pray while multitasking. You know, it's just one, it's tough to do. You're like, oh, no, I'm good at multitasking. No, you're not that good, okay? Uh, and, you know, studies show that you're not actually as efficient when you multitask. But especially in prayer, it's very difficult to pray and do anything else at the same time with your mind. And so we need to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that we can, we can be praying to God and, and talking to God. We, we don't want anything interrupting that because it's the end, you know, when when we're distracted by other things, it's it's difficult to pray. Um, it's kind of like when um, you know when you're in a conversation. I, I'll, I'll sort of admit a, a little fault I have here, but sometimes I'll be in a, you know in the midst of a conversation, people will be talking, and then someone will say something. And I'll be like, oh yeah, let me let me look that up, and then I get my phone out, and then I'm like, well yeah, well since I'm here, I might as well check Facebook. No, no, go ahead, I'm listening, and you know, and like, and I'll just be you know like kind of listening, but kind of fiddling and. And then I'll suddenly get this feeling, and, and I'll be like, I, I have a bad feeling. And I'll look up, and my wife will just be staring at me, like with that, that look. Like, Then she'll start doing the sign language. She'll be like, you know? And I'll be like, I don't know what that means, but I think it's negative. I'm like, oh, he's on the phone. Yeah, sorry, 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 you know? 
And that's kind of how it is with God. Like, oh, yeah, yeah God, God, you know. To pray, we, we have to unplug. We have to have a clear mind if we're going to really seek the Lord. So what, what's clouding your mind? What if, what if to have a better prayer life, and probably all of us here would like a better prayer life, what if, what if to have a better prayer life, it's not just, well, I better wake up 10 minutes earlier in the morning so I can pray. What, what if part of the secret of having a better prayer life is just unclouding your mind so that you're clear-minded and self-controlled? What, what is it that's perhaps clouding your mind, worries or obsessions or things or whatever, I don't know, because the end of all things is near, and therefore, let's get our priorities straight, and priority number one is to seek the Lord, to to really lean into Him and to know the Lord. I love that last song we just sang, that we may know the risen Christ. That's priority number one in the end times. But not only is there a a, a vertical priority, there's also a horizontal priority. There's also something else that's really important in the end. And you see it in verse 8. It's that, it's that we're to love each other. Look at verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply. So there's not only a, a, a vertical focus on our relationship with God, but because it's the end, there should be a horizontal focus on our love and our relationship for each other. Notice the emphasis that Peter puts into it. He says, above all... Love each other deeply. I mean, this, this is, above all, you know, lots of things going on in the church, right? Important things, budgets and personnel and deciding where the picnic should be held and what color they should paint the nursery wing. You know, lots of decisions to be made, lots of important things. But above all, the most important thing we have to get right is loving each other deeply. That's above all. That's an end times priority. It's, it's, it's love and relationships. And it's not something that, that we often find when we get perspective on life, however that perspective comes, that one of the things, you know, Christians, non-Christians, I mean, all, all kinds of people recognize, you know, one of the priorities is relationships, family. Maybe that's why old people love to have family around. I don't know, any, any old people here? I'll let you self-identify. <laughs> Why does grandma, grandma, what, what do you want to do? I just want the kids and the grandkids around. Just let's get them all together for the weekend. What do you want to do, though, grandma? No, I just want you to be around. You know, and, and maybe they, they're on to something because they've realized after all their long life that what really counts is, is people in our lives. And so how much more so in the body of Christ is that true? That, that as we consider the end, we should be really highlighting our relationships and our love for each other. That's something we can grow in. And so what does this love look like? Well, Peter doesn't just tell us to love each other. He gives us three specific concrete examples of, of what end times love looks like in action. Three, three specific ways that, that this kind of end times love can manifest itself. Here's the first one, number one. Above all, love each other deeply because, here's the first one, love covers a multitude of sins. So we should love each other in a way that, that we're covering sin, covering sin in the church. What does that mean? 
I'm going to be honest, when I first studied that verse, I kind of got hung up on it because I was like, what do you mean cover sin? Like covering up sin? We're supposed to cover up sin? Is that it? Like, hey, I just found out something. The pastor's embezzling money from the church. What should we do? Let's cover it up because the Bible says we should love him. Good call. Right? Is that what it's? That's totally fictional. But... (laughs) I mean, is, is, is that the point of this passage? Like, you know, shh, sweep it under the rug, never confront, n- never challenge anybody, certainly never, you know, exercise church discipline or anything like that. It should just be covering up sin and loving. Is, is that what this passage is teaching? I don't think so. And so as I wrestled with it, I actually found help from the book of Proverbs. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but it's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. I'll just read it to you. And I found this proverb helpful as I was trying to understand that verse. This is what it says in Proverbs ten twelve: Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. So, so I think the kind of covering that Peter's talking about isn't sweeping things under the rug that need to be addressed, but rather it's it's dealing with sin and problems in the church in a way that doesn't just inflame it and make it bigger, but it's dealing with it in a way that puts, puts it out over time. Um, th- think of sin in the church or, or conflict in the church or whatever as a kind of fire that started, right? So, you know, think of us all living in a, a, a condo complex, and right on the front lawn, somebody started a fire. Like, and, and now we have a choice. We can pour something on that fire. Are we going to pour water on the fire? Or are we going to pour gasoline on the fire? And, and how we choose to respond to sin and, and to hurt and when we, we offend each other and when we step on each other's toes and when we wrong each other in the church, how, how we choose to respond to that is either going to be pouring water on or it's going to be pouring gasoline on. If we respond with patience, with listening ears to each other with, with kindness, even when we confront, when the conf- confrontation is done in gentleness and love and with an eye to restore, that's going to be water that's going to cover over and keep that sin from going wild. Or we could pour gasoline on it. <laughs> you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You're going to insult me, I'm going to insult you. you know, you're going to gossip about me, fine, I'm going to go gossip about you. And, and so it's possible to respond to sin in a way that, that inflames the conflict. And so, and so I think that's really the point of this. It's a kind of love for each other that enables us to, to deal with sin and hurt in a way that, that keeps peace and unity in the body of Christ, not, not in a way that hides it or, or ignores sin, but that, but that puts it out so that Satan can't have free reign in our congregation, or in any congregation. Um, it also, I think, includes forgiveness, right? Just being able to forgive each other. Remember when Peter, speaking of Peter, when he went to Jesus and he said, hey, Jesus, uh, if someone sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? I'm thinking like, you know, seven. <laughs> like, you know, like Peter thought he was being all, all awesome. Like, seven. I, I could do it seven times, Jesus. And Jesus is like, uh, try 70 times seven, Peter. That's how many times you forgive each other. Like, what? 70 times seven? Come on. 
But when we have received such forgiveness and grace through the blood of Christ, where all of our sins have been forgiven, we need to be willing to continually forgive each other. And, and not forgive, but like, but I'm going to remember this one. <laughs> but, you know, to forgive and to forgive again. It's that kind of love and forgiveness and grace that covers sin in a, in a healthy way that puts out the fire. So that's what love looks like in action. How about you? Do you, do you have you been hurt by somebody in the church? Does somebody wicked annoy you? Has somebody wronged you? Have you been hurt by somebody's sin? Have a deep love for each other that seeks in dealing with that to do it in a way that's going to bring resolution and unity and peace and not make things bigger. Here's the second thing that love looks like. Number two, so number one, love covers a multitude of sins. Here's the second thing that end times love for each other looks like. It's hospitality. Look at verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is an interesting thing. And let's just face it. There's some people who have a gift of hospitality. Maybe you have a gift of hospitality. You know these people who have a gift of hospitality? They're just like, they open their home. Come on over. Hey, can I bring three more friends? Sure. We'll just whip up a little extra. You know, and they just seem to have people over, and they're glad, and they're always, you know, they're almost like a Snow White, you know, Disney movie. They're like in the kitchen, <laughs> and you know, there's forest animals helping them clean, you know. There's a little squirrel, like, sweeping, and, you know, it just, hospitality just flows out of them. Don't you just hate those people? Because there's some people with the gift of hospitality, and then there's everybody else, right? And Peter knew that you were here because he wrote to you. He said, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's for the rest of us who do not have the gift of hospitality, who struggle with hospitality. You know, don't, don't grumble. Why did you invite them over? Why do we always have to host the Bible study? Why do your friends always have to sleep over here? Why can't you sleep over at their house? Don't they have an Xbox? You know? And, and so we, it, we're tempted to grumble, but Peter says, offer hospitality to another without grumbling. Hospitality is important because it helps us love each other. You, you know, I think sometimes we, we want to love each other, but just kind of like in a theory. Like, yeah, we, yeah I, love, I love the church, you know, and I don't really want to talk to any of them or hang out with any of them or whatever, but, but I love them, you know, over there, way far away from me. But hospitality forces us into each other's lives. It opens uh, doors for us, especially in a, a, a culture like that, probably where Peter was ministering. They didn't have maybe even church buildings. And so the fellowship that took place was in homes. They, they had to open up their homes to each other and invite each other in. Could I give you a, a, an observation on hospitality from this passage? For those of you mere mortals here who struggle with hospitality, for whom it's not a gift, for whom it's stressful and exhausting and anxious, here's a thought on hospitality for you. What is the goal of hospitality? In other words, what, what should be the result of hospitality? And I think in light of this passage, the goal of hospitality 
is love, right? It, it's so that people will feel love. So, so the whole goal, you know you've been successful, a, a hospitable person, if the person to whom you showed hospitality felt love. That's the goal. And I think that's important because that means the goal of hospitality is not to score high marks on some kind of good housekeeping, bon appetit test. I think sometimes when we do hospitality, it's, it, we kind of feel like it's like a figure skating competition or, you know, gymnastics routine where you start at like 10 and then they just, you know, nick you every time you mess up. Like, ah, oh, burn the potatoes. That's a half a point deduction, you know. Oh, the kids were obnoxious. You know, like one of my kids belched at the table. That's a point deduction. Oh, you know, all oh, my furniture's beat up, and oh, that's a two-point deduction. I'm a bad decorator. You know, and, and so we think of hospitality as kind of like having to meet some arbitrary standard of whatever, but it's not a test. The whole point is love. It's it's helping others feel love and and feel warmly embraced, to, to build community in the body of Christ. If at the end of some hospitality exercise, people felt loved, and if the community of the church was closer, and if people got to know each other better, hey, that's a 10. That's what the whole point of it was, is to offer our homes. Uh, and even beyond our homes, I, I think when you think of hospitality that way, it's not just about having someone over for dinner. It's about just kind of an open life. So last Sunday uh, after church, um, one of the members of the church came up to me or right after the worship service, and he said, hey, Pastor Jeremy, my growth group is going out for brunch, and this is totally spur of the moment. Would you come out to lunch? Would you come out to brunch with us? And, and I wasn't able to go. I'd, I'd already had things uh, lined up that I was going to do, but I was just like, wow, thank you. You know, I really felt loved even just by that offer that someone would say, we want you to, to come with us. And it just, it just felt really good. I was like, man, this is, a, you know, this is the kind of church I want to be in <laughs> where people do that for each other and, and we open up our lives. So it's not even just having people over for a meal in some sort of traditional hospitality sense, but I think it's an openness of life that, that allows space for others to come in. And that's, that's a picture not only of, of the church, it's really a picture of what the Lord has done for us in the hospitality of His grace inviting us into his kingdom through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let's review. The end of all things is near. That should give us a perspective. That should give us new priorities. Priority number one should be seeking the Lord in a relationship with him, especially through prayer, making sure that that other things aren't clouding our, our minds so that we're never in prayer. Priority number two is to love each other, and that that is the highest priority that we have in the church to each other, is to love deeply. And love looks like this. Number one, covering a multitude of sins. Number two, offering hospitality without grumbling. And here's a third snapshot of that kind of love and action. It's to use our spiritual gifts to serve each other. Look at verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So every born-again Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. Isn't that awesome? Every born-again Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. And if the Holy Spirit's in you, you have at least one spiritual gift or gifts 
that God has given you for the, for the use in the church. It might be a new gift God gave you when you became a Christian. It might be some talents or abilities you were born with that God is going to take and use some way. But, but every Christian who's really born again and really has the Holy Spirit has God's grace in them to be used as a gift to serve others. Every one of us has one. And, and it's lots of different manifestations of that gift. And the purpose of the gifts is to serve each other. So I, I love what it says there. He says, administering God's grace in its various forms. That one of the main ways God pours out his grace into our lives is through the gifts of other people in the church, right? Um, we all need grace, man. I need grace every day. I need grace to stay on track every day. Where do you get grace? You know, can you get it at Amazon? You know, like, where do, you, where do I get grace? I need grace. Well, God has given avenues of grace. Reading the Bible is one way we, we receive God's grace. Prayer is another way we receive God's grace. And here's another one. Being around other Christians who can then use their gifts in your life, they become conduits of God's grace into your life. And, and, and so being around other Christians is like, just like letting the, the water of the Holy Spirit flow into us. You know, it's, it's like a plant, right? And, and there's this plant that's not being watered. And, and you're like, man, why is this plant so dry? Why are these leaves brown? This thing doesn't look good. What's wrong with this? And some botanist comes along and says, well, mysterious fact about plants is they need water. I'm like, really? We need to water this plant. And I think some of us are, are dry in our faith and, and we're weak and we're, we're kind of dying and withered and we're not vibrant. And you're like, man, my faith is so weak and I'm always getting beat down by temptation. You know, what, what, what do I do? And it's like, well, is the grace flowing in? Are you reading the Bible? Are you praying? And are you in relationship with other Christians where the grace, the manifold grace of God can flow into your life through all of the different spiritual gifts. This is why it's so important that every Christian be a part, a committed member of a local congregation. This is why Christians who are not in churches are just shooting themselves in the foot. You just, you know, Christians who aren't in churches are like purposely turning the water spigot off. You're going to dry up and die. We need each other. You can't do this text unless you're in a church. This is what Christians do. In com- this is all about community with each other. You know, you won't have to cover any sins if you're not with other believers because no one will sin against you because you're not in relationship with any of them. And you can't have the gifts of the Spirit working unless you're in a, a church community. And so that's the picture here. Different people using different gifts in different ways. Now look at verse 11. Peter summarizes the different gifts of of the Spirit in, into two main buckets. There's lots and lots of gifts, but Peter kind of summarizes them in two main buckets. Speaking gifts and then serving gifts. See that in verse 11? If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. So, so that's just one way of kind of categorizing the spiritual gifts. Speaking gifts, serving gifts. So some of you have speaking gifts. Teaching, preaching, exhorting, counseling with wise words, prophesying. Some of you 
speak in tongues, that's a controversial topic. But let's just put it under the category of words, right? But word gifts, speaking gifts that, that are part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then there's doing gifts or, or work gifts or serving gifts like leadership, administration, organization, uh, giving generously, showing hospitality, right? All these, all these kind of doing gifts. Helping, you know, the Bible calls helping as a gift. So, so that means, you know, there's some of us here are like, I, I don't have any gifts. I just, I just like to be behind the scenes and just, you know, to see things that need to be done, little things, and I'll just take care of those little things, right? Like, yeah, that's a gift because little things matter. The little things count. And so there's all kinds of gifts in the body. What, do you know what your spiritual gifts are if you're a Christian? Could, could you put your finger on what they are? How do you find out what your spiritual gifts are? Do you go online and do one of those spiritual gift tests? Have you ever taken those things? Those things are so lame. <laughs> have you ever spoken in tongues? No. You do not have the gift of tongues. Thank you. <laughs> Look, that's not how you find your spiritual gifts. Let me tell you how to find your spiritual gifts. Get involved with other Christians. Be in a growth group. Be in relationship with other Christians, right? And then, after you've been in relationship with other Christians for six months or a year or two years or whatever, ask those Christians who've been with you, what do you think my spiritual gifts are? And they'll know. They'll be like, oh, yeah. You're like this and this and this. Oh, you're always the guy who does that. You're always the one who does this. I've, I've been blessed when you do that. That's how we find spiritual gifts is by living in community with each other in the body of Christ and in the church. And, and spiritual gifts can be used, you know, in programmatic ways in the church, but they can be used informally as well. So for those of you here who have speaking gifts, anyone here have speaking gifts? Here's what Peter says to you. You should speak as one speaking the very words of God. And what I take that to mean is when you speak, you should be using God's word. You know, if you're teaching, if you're preaching, if you're counseling, if you're giving wise advice, if you're exhorting, if you're an encourager, as, as you use those speaking gifts, make sure that the thing you're saying is God's word. Make sure it's the gospel. Don't let it be your own crazy ideas. But let your speaking gifts be a conduit through which it's God's word that's doing the work in the church. How about those of you who serve? Anyone here have serving gifts? Here's a word for you. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. Don't do it in your strength. Do it in the Lord's strength. Don't do it in your know-how or your wisdom. Let it be God's power that, that flows through you. I don't know if anyone here has ever, uh, some of you here have been Christians a long time, you've served in churches, you've done a lot of ministries. Has anyone ever just kind of gotten burned out in church ministry? It happens, you know, and, and there's lots of reasons for it. Sometimes things we can't control, sometimes difficult seasons of life. But I think one contributing factor, at least in my own experience, that I found when I felt dry or tired or I'm just struggling in ministry, sometimes, not always, but one of the contributing factors can be that I'm doing it in my own strength, that I've stopped praying, <laughs> 
that, that I've stopped looking to the Lord's strength and I'm using Jeremy's know-how, Jeremy's wisdom, Jeremy's abilities and not God's strength flowing through me. Jesus said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the, the branches. If anyone abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. And so we need to abide in Christ. It's his grace flowing through us. It's God's word spoken through us that does the work. In fact, I would argue that this whole section that we've looked at has to be done in God's strength. It's all his grace. I mean, how do you get a clear mind? You need God's grace. Are you clouded today? You're like, all right, I'm going to clear my mind. Well, maybe you should just start by saying, God, I got a cloudy mind. Would you clear my mind, Lord, so that I can pray? Oh, God, I know I'm supposed to love others, but I really struggle with loving. Oh, Lord, would you please pour your grace into my heart and fill me up with love for people who are hard to love? Oh, Lord, I've been really hurt, and and for some reason I can't let go of this resentment. Oh, Lord, give me a love that forgives the way I've been forgiven. May your grace change me. Oh, Lord, you said offer hospitality. I don't like doing it. Oh, God, give me grace to, to not be holding on to my resources, but to be pouring out my resources for the good of the body and the gospel. Lord, I need your grace to make me more hospitable, and I need your grace to use your gifts. Lord Jesus, you must make me into an end times Christian like this. I can't get there on my own. And when we look to God's strength, when we look to God's power, and we wait upon the Lord, God gets all the glory. Verse 11, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. That that when people say, boy, you're so hospitable or or you're so forgiving, and you'd be like, look, it's not me. It's him. How did you you forgive that person for that? Or or how, how how do you praise so much? Man, it's not me. God has done something in my life. And so to him, verse 11, be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful that you are coming back. We're so thankful that this is it, that we're at the end. And Lord, we don't know if you're coming back next year or a hundred years from now, but Lord, we know that the time is short. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live as people who live in this world but are not clinging to this world because we know that this present world is passing away. And so, God, help us to be people who live for the glory of God and for his coming kingdom. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be in relationship with you. I I pray, God, that you would give us clear minds. Lord, I, I ask that all of us would grow in prayer by having clear minds and not being fogged up with worldly things. And God, I pray for all of us here to grow in love for each other. I pray that you'd make South Shore Baptist Church a a more loving church. Lord, help us to love each other by responding to sin in ways that puts the fire out. 
God, I pray that you'd help us to love each other by showing hospitality and opening our hearts and our ourselves to each other. God, I pray that you'd help us to love each other by serving and using our gifts. Oh, Lord, it's so tempting when two pastors are leaving the church and there's so much transition to, to uh, hunker down and to become conservative. Oh, God, save us from being conservative. Help us to be generous. Give us an open-hearted vision. Oh, Lord, the gospel still needs to be preached regardless of who's the pastor here. Oh, God, would you give us a heart for the gospel? Would you give us a heart to see the kingdom of God grow and push outwards? Oh, Lord, would you not let this church be shackled with any fear, any anxiety? Because the time is short. We don't have time. So, Lord, give us hearts for the South Shore and beyond, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.